Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by a veteran of the podcast, Chris Galdieri, who's going to be speaking on behalf of himself and his two co-editors of the new book, Polarization and Political Party Factions in the 2020 Election. So he is representing Jennifer Lucas and Tana Sisko, as well as himself. This book was published by Lexington Books in 2022, and I had the great honor of blurbing the back of it. So I read it a little bit ago and looked it over again before we started to talk. Um, And this is an edited volume that goes through thinking about what the parties are doing, how they're acting, how they're operating. Rating, um, and how we understand them, particularly in the 2020 election, where we saw sort of tensions within the parties, both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, but also this polarization that has been marking this political period rather acutely. I'm going to let Chris talk all about that. I'd like to welcome Chris Galdieri to the podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this project with his co-authors. Hi, Chris. Hi, Lily. Thanks for having me back and for blurbing the book. That's always you know a nice thing to have. Um, so I'm a professor in the uh, politics department at St. Anselm College, um, and our uh, department is housed in the same building as the New Hampshire Institute of Politics, which has been in operation for a little over 20 years now. Um, and it's become sort of a center for um, political events in New Hampshire of all stripes, um, politics and eggs, which is a real thing. It wasn't just on the West Wing. Uh, Those breakfasts often happen down the hall in our auditorium. Um, Candidates uh, appear here at the presidential level, but also people running for Congress, for a state state representative, mayor, that sort of thing. Um, And we teach a lot of classes here. And so um, this is sort of a long way of sliding into uh, where this book came from. Um, A little over 10 years ago, my colleagues, Peter Josephson and Ward Holder, got the idea that uh, our department, together with the resources of the Institute of Politics, um, should really be doing more on the academic side. Specifically, they had the idea to host a small symposium-style conference on the 2012 election uh, in the spring of 2013. Uh, and that was a big success, um, had a you know good turnout, lots of smart folks showed up, and ultimately they produced an edited volume on that election. Um, I was one of the contributors to that. And um, going into 2014, uh, they handed over the you know metaphorical keys to the conference to my colleagues, Jen Lucas and Tana Sisko, um, uh, basically saying, okay, we did it once, we got this up and running, uh, it's time for you know other folks to... to step up and, and, um, have a chance at this. And then, uh, Jen 
was going to have a baby the weekend of the conference. And so they thought, okay, we're going to need extra hands. So I was invited and I was still a fairly junior person here. Uh, I think that would have been my third year at St. A's um, to join in. So I said, sure. And I'll help edit, you know, whatever book comes out of this too. And they said, okay, that you're, you're a smart guy. Good. Uh, good, good, good ask there. Um, so that was actually a really big learning curve. Uh, it turns out there's a lot less interest in uh, midterm elections from publishers, particularly for what it, we started off with, which was a fairly um, generic book. Uh, not not generic in the bad sense, but it's a very general book, like lots of stuff about lots of different topics. Um, we ultimately went with a small publisher, uh, University of Akron Press, that recommended splitting it into two books, and we didn't know anything about editing. So we you know, were just like, okay, our, editor, our, our contributors have turned in their manuscripts, and now we send them to the press, and we've edited the book, right? No, we needed to do all sorts of formatting stuff and citation stuff and everything. Basically, it's like, no, no, we published the book, but you actually have to do the editing of it. And so we spent most of an Easter break uh, crouched over laptops, learning all we didn't know about Chicago style citations. Um, we did another conference uh, for the 2016 election. Um, that one, we'd started to learn more. Um, and we knew that there basically one of the things we learned from the 2014 book experience is there's not a lot of interest in uh, general interest or general, broadly general um, books, edited volumes on elections. Um there are a handful of people who do those already. They're established. They have relationships with publishers. And if you look at those books, they're not what they once were. They're less academic, more journalistic, that sort of thing. Um, so that year, we thought we'd do something a little bit more focused. Um, and we looked at the books we had and we were like, oh, we've got a number of books about number of papers about Twitter. Uh, so let's do a small book that focuses exclusively on Twitter and the 2016 election. And then we had a bunch of other books that dealt with various demographic aspects of the race or other things that sort of um, came together in a less focused book. But, you know, it was a smaller again, it was another smaller book. It was not one of those. Here's just a bunch of stuff. It was, you know, a little bit more thematically organized. Um, in, so we did another conference and another book and an edit and a special issue of Congress and presidency for the 2018 elections. And then this brings us to 2020. Finally, um, with the 2020 conference, we had two major themes that emerged from the papers, um, without us really asking for it or looking for it. Um, one was identity politics, um, and those papers are going to be coming out in a separate book we hope later this year um and the other theme was political parties specifically um questions about party factions and party polarization and we collected those into this volume on party factions and political polarization in the 2020 election um and what we liked about this is that you know it's it's got a good it's focused on parties, but it's still got a good breadth of um, content within that focus. Um, in other words, we don't, um, you know, you, you don't pick it up and it's one of those books where it's like we've got, you know, 58 chapters and they're about, you know, you know, one's about like, you know, 
the weather in Spokane on election day and how that affected turnout. Um, and this one's about the left-handed vegetarian vote and that sort of thing. These are all, you know, basically focused on, you know, some aspect of parties. Um, and I think that in part is because 2020 was such a weird election for so many reasons, uh, and such a strange election year. Um, but also it reflects that, you know, this is something that, you know, increasingly a lot of political scientists who study American politics are looking at and saying, okay, this is, you know, this is important. This is what's going on. And this is what really needs scholarly attention. Um, so we were just really happy to be able to have a bunch of really good papers by really smart people that we could put together, um, into a book and, uh, cast out onto and the so waters. this is really part one of a two-part series it seems <laughs> so I'll, I'll be talking to you in about another six eight months about the book on on identity politics um but let's let's stick with today's theme of um party polarization and party factionalism um and so if we are talking about we will get into sort of the substance of the the chapters and the the structure of the book but when we talk about party polarization, we're talking about the two parties, generally speaking, and we can, I guess, throw Andrew Yang in here or not, as we so choose. Let's not. Um, but we we have two parties that are, in fact, structured at the at this time as as kind of opposite to one another, um, and that's what we mean by party polarization. Um, so, as a theme, how did you see this sort of coming out? as the papers were coming in for the conference and as you were sort of pulling them together in the book? Um, that's a really good question. Um, a lot of it, some, you know, some of the papers look at um, not just the differences between the party, but how those differences have, um, uh, you know, gotten bigger over time. Um, you know, when I'm teaching American politics, you know, one of the things that students I tell students and they nod like they understand, but I don't think they actually do is no, once upon a time you had, you know, conservative Democrats, they were straight up conservative Democrats. They weren't like Joe Manchin conservative. They were really conservative and you had liberal Republicans, you know, uh, to go back to my first book, uh, you know, Bobby Kennedy ran against Ken Keating for the Senate in New York. And the whole campaign was about which candidate was more liberal. And I think Keating may have actually been more liberal um, in that case. Um, you know, so some of the chapters, um, you know, the one by Mark Brewer and, and Richard Powell, you know, looks at how not just the changes in the Republican Party, but how Donald Trump sort of put port accelerant all over them uh, and really, you know, gave a voice to a you know chunk of that party that prior to Trump had generally been held at arm's length and kept like sort of in the circle or in the tent, as Lyndon Johnson might have put it, but at the very, very, very edge of the tent um, and sort of brought that that all the way to the center. Um, we you know, had um, uh, other, excuse me, um, one chapter by uh, Father Jerome Day, um, who is a Benedictine uh, priest who teaches in our communications department. Uh, and he really, you know, looked at the Lincoln Project's ads uh, more from a... Um, uh, in the in the way that you analyze a text as opposed to analyze their impact on voters. But, you know, what, what I found really interesting about that is, um, you know, that was more of an intra-party 
dispute. Uh, and he was basically, you know, one of the things I took away from this is, oh, the Lincoln Project stuff isn't aimed at liberals on Twitter. It's aimed at, you know, ambivalent or anxious Republicans, Republicans who, you know, they're not thrilled with Trump. They don't mind the tax cuts, but they're really worried about how this COVID thing is going. Remember COVID? Um, and, uh, and, 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 you know, that sort of thing. Um, and then one of the really interesting papers um, by Whitney Hua and Chris Chapman and, and a couple other co-authors um, looked at how Twitter and uh, campaign websites really sort of stoke this whole idea of negative partisanship, um, which is another concept that's had a lot of uh, traction in recent years. And negative partisanship, for folks who might not be familiar with it, is the idea that uh, um, people are motivated not by feelings of warmth towards their own party or a desire for their own party to succeed, but by the fact that they can't stand the other party and they don't want the other party to succeed and that you actually you know, get more satisfaction from the opposing party losing than you get from your party winning. So, you know, the best part of your candidate winning isn't that you get to see your candidate give a give a triumphant victory speech. It's that you get to see the other candidate cry and get to see their supporters be upset and and angry and, and all the other stuff that goes with that. Um, basically making in that chapter makes the point that, you know, it's this isn't just an emergent property of American politics in the 21st century, you know, at this point, candidates are, they're, they're stoking that they're poking at each other and talking about each other, um, in ways, um, that, that fuel that particular fire. And, and so we have, we have the partisan polarization, which is the op, you know, the two parties in opposition to one another. And as you say, within that sort of opposition, there's this, you know, the Republicans want to own the libs um, and the, the Democrats want to, you know, dump on the Republicans um, kind of acute polarization that the, the parties are, you know, in tension with one another, um, over policy and also over how, you know, how much they don't like the other team, um, because that's also where it's descended into, um, to a bit. Um, but then we also have this idea of party factionalism, um, which is running alongside it and inside of it, it's braided together. Um, but as you point out in the book, these are two sort of different concepts. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how party factionalism is connected to polarization, but also distinct? Okay, so um, party factionalism plays out really differently in each party. Um, with Republicans, you have a party that's really focused on ideology, on who is the most conservative candidate, who is the candidate who's best able to deliver on conservative goals. That's how Donald Trump got nominated back in 2016, uh, even though he had a bunch of positions that made him look like he was on the outs of where Republicans wanted their candidates to be. He was going to say, oh, look, elect me. I'll repeat. Obamacare, I'll get you uh, conservative judges, I'll flip the Supreme Court, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, for the Democrats, you have a party that, you know, it 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 is the quote unquote liberal party, but it also is a liberal party because it's made up of a coalition of a bunch of groups that want uh, liberal policy goals. 
And so you don't become the Democratic nominee the way Donald Trump did by just saying, oh, there's one set of goals we all want, and I'm the one who's going to deliver them. You sort of have to put together a coalition of voters uh, that that you've convinced you can deliver on their policy preferences. Um, So a good example of this in 2020. Um, Joe Biden got the nomination because he was very successful with black voters, beginning with the South Carolina primary, why he had a long history with black voters. He was Barack Obama's vice president, and he was able to go to folks like uh, Jim Clyburn and say, look, I'm the guy who can deliver for you. And so you put that together with, you know, some white working class hard hat voters in the Rust Belt, et cetera, et cetera. And pretty soon you've got yourself a nomination. Different Democrats get nominated differently, right? With Barack Obama in 2008, it was black voters and sort of the wine track voters who tended in past years to vote for people like Bill Bradley. Um, So that means that the way factionalism works within each party is is really different. And, you know, we have some chapters that get at that. Uh, The first two chapters, I think, really um, address that really well. Todd Belt um, analyzes um, online activists and their um, preferences in the Democratic primary in 2020. And he he talks, it's it's a fantastic chapter. You know, he identifies these folks that he calls expressive attentives, uh, which is academic speak for very online liberals uh, or very online progressives, I should say, um, because they're different now. Um, And, uh, you know, basically finds, yeah, these folks, you know, they are really engaged in politics. They're online all the time. They do activism online, but they also do, you know, the in-person face-to-face scut work. They will make phone calls. They will knock on doors. They will, you know, wave signs by the, you know, highway or whatever, by the on-ramp. Um, uh, and even though they were more likely to support somebody like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren uh, early on, um, they had no problems uh, switching and supporting Joe Biden once he was clearly the nominee. Um, we also have a, a chapter by Zachary Albert who looks at endorsements, and he finds that you know you had sort of two factions within the Democratic Party uh, in terms of. Um, uh, elected officials making endorsements. Um, you know, on the one hand, you have what he calls moderate pragmatists, the folks who just want somebody who can who can win the election and get stuff done. So these are the folks who would endorse Joe Biden or they would endorse Amy Klobuchar or somebody like that, uh, or Michael Bennett, um, to the extent that he got endorsements, uh, came up in that. And please don't tell Seth Maskett I might have made it sound like Michael Bennett is anything other than um, the guy who should have won in 2020. Um, you, but then you also had, uh, you know, the progressive populists who went in for somebody like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or one of the other, you know, um, really progressive candidates in that race. Um And, you know, but again, he says, you know, you sort of had this sort of dispersal in part because there were so many candidates. Um, You know, we tend to forget this now, but this time three years ago, there were something like 27 Democrats running for their party's nomination. Um, You know, so you had Biden and Harris and Warren and Sanders, but then you also had, remember, Beto O'Rourke ran for president. Remember that? I do. It's It's it's, like a blank. It's the weirdest thing. Um, yeah, so Beto, yeah, you had folks like Beto, you had, you know, sort of backbench congressmen like Seth Moulton, uh, from Massachusetts or Eric Swalwell from, from California who, you know, are fine public servants, but you know, the, you know, 
the the leap from you know uh, a house member to the white house is kind of odd there i don't know if it, what whatever was was going on there and then you had like you know absolute like absolutely bizarre candidacies like you know andrew yang or um marianne williamson um you know folks from out of you know no anyway point being um you had you had so many candidates that you know it, it, nobody was really a front runner again people lots of folks in the party waiting to see what happened um and again it was kind of remarkable because um you know for the most part historically parties tend to try to coordinate on candidates early they don't want donald trump be, they they want to you know sort of put a thumb on the scale for you know hillary clinton in 2016 or or uh, mitt romney in 2012 candidates like that you know ones that where you know them where they're you know, familiar enough where, you know, they're not going to go rogue once they get into office and, and, you know, just sort of, uh, what can I say? Sarah Palin's running for office today. Um, uh, where they're, you know, they're reliable and you think they can win and they're familiar and they're not going to surprise you and, and, and all the rest of that. In 2020, everybody seems to have largely just sort of been waiting to see what happened. And it's like, oh, once, okay, so once it's down to Biden and Bernie, um, you know, if you're a Democratic Party regular, you're, you're, you know, going to discover your love for Joe Biden, even if you had your first choice had been, you know, Kamala Harris or, or Elizabeth Warren or somebody like that. Um, an, another chapter that I thought was really um, interesting on this front was the one by Brian Arbor on campaign finance, um, where he finds that, you know, there's been this explosion in recent years of small dollar donations directly to candidates. Um, and unlike traditional fundraising where somebody from the party or the candidate themselves calls you up, um, or they call someone who calls their friends who have money to donate and say, hey, there's this really competitive race in uh, such and such district in, you know, Pennsylvania or Texas or, you know, wherever. Uh, do you want to donate to it? Can you can I count on you to donate to this? Um you know, small dollar donors are more reactive to whatever is on viral has gone viral on Twitter. Um, so you see, you know, this this explains you know people who give money to the Amy McGraths of the world, uh, these candidates who are running against you know hated figures in the other party. They have no chance, but they're running against Mitch McConnell or they're running against uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, uh, and gosh, you can't stand them. Every time you see them on TV, your blood pressure spikes. Uh, I could take medicine for that, but instead I'm going to write a check for $200 and give it to whoever their opponent is. Um, and to me, that was really striking because it's, you know, one of those things where I, I wonder, are you in the, you know, early stages of a phenomenon and eventually this will settle down? Or are you always going to have small dollar folks who are, I don't want to use the word gullible, but gullible enough to convince themselves that these candidates with no chance can be elected. Um, or are these folks with disposable income and they feel a lot better writing a check and, you know, hoping for, you know, you know, it, they write the check and they, they hope there's a miracle and their candidate somehow wins. And and I know that this has been sort of an interesting permutation in 
in our sort of national level politics, because it is also like drawing people who are not from the district or not from the state um, to contribute to, you know, a random district that they have no connection to. Um, But it was also the case with regard to small dollar donations, obviously for Bernie Sanders, multiple runs for the presidency. And if I remember correctly for Obama, when he first was running for the nomination as well. So that there's a, a new cachet, in a sense, with regard to small dollar donations. Yeah, and it's an area where I, I think there's room, if somebody hasn't done it yet, to do a really interesting, like, look pre-internet because, you know, uh, that was part of George McGovern's thing in 1972. He built this massive small dollar network of people who just send them five or ten dollars a month um, and this was the 70s like you could buy a car with ten dollars um, and they would just send it every month and nobody had ever quite done that before and then you had on the conservative side you had you know this this massive direct mail machine where uh you know people would send out these appeals and you know it was i I don't want to say it was like there was something scammy about it, except it involves convincing old people to give you money every month, which is kind of almost inherently scammy. Um, But it's like, oh, did you see what scary Ted Kennedy said? Send us money to help President Reagan stop him and that sort of thing. Um, And then, you know, you you had Howard Dean in 2004 who really took it online. Um, But and again, to bring this back to stuff students have trouble with, it's like it's hard to explain how hard it was to give a candidate money once upon a time. You had to write a check. You had to have a stamp. You had to, you know, know where to send it. And it used to be hard to find these things out. Like you didn't have the Internet. Like what's George McGovern's campaign address? I have no idea. Um. Now it's just, you know, you go online and you put in the candidate's name and it takes you to a website that is hopefully affiliated with their candidacy. And you, you know, click a button and you've just, you know, basically you're making a mortgage payment to their campaign every month until you hit the federal limit. Um, that's a huge difference and it's a huge shift. Um, but it's also one of those things where I think there's probably analog antecedents um though that was a good phrase i should write that down um that um uh we don't fully appreciate um and and so in regard to sort of understanding these distinctions and as as you're fleshing out some of the the work that's done by the contributors to the book in terms of explaining factionalism in different ways um, in the parties, not just the sort of ideological distinctions and the difference in coalition building, but also in the way that um, they have been sort of pursuing fundraising um, and, and in the way that the factionalism sort of within the parties has been sorting itself out, like who's giving money to um, candidate Trump versus who's giving money to um, to Marco Rubio uh, in 2016 or something to that effect. Or as you say, you know, who's giving money to Joe Biden in 2020 versus who's giving money to Pete Buttigieg in 2020. Um, and so we see this sort of difference in, in, 
in a lot of the work that's done in the book. And you lay out this book in four different sections. Um, and you sort of touched on some of the stuff that happens in the different sections. Um, but if we could just sort of trace you know, quickly the sort of way that the book is set up, because it also reflects the 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 conference papers themselves, right? The conference papers were generated for a conference. And then as you start to read them, as has been my experience as well, you start to see themes. As you said, there were themes that immediately jumped out from the conference. Um, so how did you sort of set up the four sections of the book and, and what do they sort of each focus on? Okay. Well, we usually start with index cards uh, of the different papers and we're like, okay, we know which ones we think go together in a book, but which ones go together with each other. Um, So part one of the book um, deals with party factions and specifically challenges to party establishments. So um, our this is the Todd Belt chapter Our um, on our very online progressive activists you know, what's their role in the party? What's their role in the nomination? Are they, you know, do they get on board with uh, Joe Biden once he's the Democrats nominee or do they, you know, go off for a sulk um, and complain that Bernie would have, you know, won 400 electoral votes and that sort of thing. Um, And that's one of the, and what's great about this and a lot of these um, chapters is that, you know, they're, looking, they begin with, or they focus on something specific to uh, the 2020 election, but these are big questions. You know, this is going, you know, whether or not Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders are ever um, on a primary ballot again together or separately, um, you know, this is something that Democrats are, you know, keeping themselves up at night wondering about in terms of 24 or 28, if Biden runs for another term. Um, related to that, you know, the Zachary Albert chapter is really like finding, okay, we can talk about, you know, we talk about an establishment, but it's really more pragmatists versus progressives. Um, and pragmatists tend to be the ones we think of as the establishment because they're the ones saying, well, wait, maybe we, you know, can't, maybe Bernie Sanders can't carry Utah or Idaho, um, or something like that, but it's, it's not like there were puppet masters, you know, pulling the strings and, and saying, aha, it's Joe Biden's turn. So we're going to go with him. Sorry, everybody. Um, instead, it's pretty clear that had those primaries gone differently, um, you know, I think you probably would have seen a surge of support towards, you know, whoever was looking like a potential nominee. Um, which is kind of unusual in 2020, you know, it, in past years that tended to happen earlier. Um, in 2020, it happened later. And if that's something that continues, that, you know, is going to really change, um, the way nominations happen. Um, uh, and then, uh, we had father Jerome's paper on, uh, the Lincoln project. And again, that one, that was really, um, the Lincoln project is something that fascinates me just as somebody who, you know, observes politics because you have a bunch of former Republicans using all of their dark arts against, uh, the leadership of their own party going after Donald Trump while he's in the white house. And, you know, they've been really clear that, you know, some of their ads, um, are made entirely for Trump. You know, they put them on, you know, they, they spend the money to put them on, on Fox during Hannity on a night. They know Trump's in DC or they put it on the uh, Fox affiliate in Florida in the media market that Mar-a-Lago is in. Cause they figure Trump's going to see that sooner or later. Um, uh, you know, 
it, and it's fascinating to me because there was all this talk for years of, is there going to be a serious Trump challenger in the Republican primary? Is somebody like John Kasich or Jeff Flake going to run against him? And the answer was, well, no. What you got was Bill Weld, uh, who ran a, an honorable, if doomed, um, insurgency. And I think in that case, it was one of those things where uh, it was that self-fulfilling prophecy, right? He's got no chance. So nobody's really paying attention to him. He's not getting news coverage. He's not somebody, he's not a media darling like Kasich. He's not in DC like Flake. Um, But then you just had these Republican ad creators uh, going after Trump tooth and nail um, through that election, which was just, just fascinating to me. Um, Part two of the book focuses on congressional elections. So you have that chapter on negative partisanship that I talked about earlier. Um, You had Rob Boatwright looking at um, primary challenges in congressional races. And he finds, you know, probably the best explanation for when they happen um, has to do with interest groups. You know, are interest groups trying to mobilize people uh, within a party against an incumbent, uh, which is a tough thing to do generally. Um, but he finds that when you have an interest group there, that provides the resources, that provides the structure, and that provides some legitimacy. So you're not just saying, oh, I think uh, Representative Smith is doing a bad job. Um, you're saying, oh, I Representative Smith is doing a bad job, and you know this interest group agrees with me. This interest group that you know and like and you know think you know is trustworthy agrees with me, and they're against representative Smith, that, you know, can be a game changer. Um, Kevin Parsno and Scott Granberg Rademacher, uh, my occasional co-authors, um, and I owe Kevin an email from last summer, um, I think. Uh, sorry, Kevin. Um, again, they looked at how um, Senate candidates use Twitter. Um, uh, and what they find is that incumbents tend to focus on policy and challengers tend to go on the attack. And that that's kind of neat because it's it's pretty consistent with a lot of uh, pre-digital research on congressional races, right? If you're an incumbent, you talk about what you've done for the district and, you know, oh, well, these are all the things I can do and I'm on this important committee. So that's why there's a bridge here. And, oh, you're worried about this international situation. Well, I'm on the armed service services committee. So let me drop some knowledge on you, uh, Mr. And Mrs. Mrs. Middle America, whereas the challenger is just trying to, you know, cut you down to size or try to get, bring you a little bit back to earth. Um, uh, and then, you know, the Brian Arbor article I talked about a bit, um, you know, really, um, gets at the possibility that there's a real distinction going on between, um, uh, where the party wants money to go and where small dollar donors want their money to go because they're distracted by, you know, bright, shiny objects than the dopamine rush you get um, when you give money to somebody running against Mitch McConnell or AOC or something. And again, that's not really necessarily different from what, you know, a conservative would do back in the 80s when they'd send a check to somebody running against Ted Kennedy. Um, But it's a whole lot more immediate now. Um, And it brings you into that whole ecosystem. I had to give the Biden campaign my my cell phone number to get into an event right before the primary last year, and I still get texts from them. Uh, And it's just it's just amazing. Like during the fall of 2020, my elections class would um, we didn't quite have a betting pool exactly, but we were curious to see how many I'd get each class period. Um, 
Section three is about the voters. You move the voters into yes. a lot of the discussion. Yes, yes, we do have. We, let's bring the voters back in, uh, as as they used to say. Um, yes. Yeah, so a lot of this go, has to do with uh, voter behavior or voters in party coalitions. Um, you know, but the th- one of my favorite chapters in the book is in here. Um, I said one of. I didn't say the favorite. Um, it's by Natalie Jackson and Michael Lewis Beck, and it's about polling and why polling had so much trouble in 2020. Because you know, after 2016, pollsters could say, "Well, it was a popular electoral split, and you know, Clinton won the popular vote by two, and we said she was up by four, so we did pretty good there." But at the state level, we kind of whiffed it. Um, and then in 2020, uh, you had, you know, they pollsters generally had the headline right, Biden beats Trump, but you know the margins that they were posting for Biden uh, going into the election were so overstated. You know, they they were having him up by you know eight or nine points and competitive in Ohio and Texas and Florida, um, and. Obviously, that didn't happen. He won by a healthy margin, um, but you know the polls were way off in terms of his margin. And then, as you go down, you know, down ticket, you know, you had all those Senate races Democrats were counting on, uh, where not only did the Democrat candidates lose, they lost pretty handily. Folks like Sarah Gideon in Maine uh, and the woman in Iowa running against Joni Ernst, whose full name escapes me. So I'm just going to say the woman in Iowa running against Joni Ernst and, and a couple of others like that. And they make the point, um, and this is one of those sort of galaxy brain points um, that I don't think I've ever heard anybody articulate like this, that here's the problem. When you're polling, you need to know what population you're trying to measure the opinions of. And so if you're trying to figure out, oh, do, you know, uh, seniors at the college, do they do they want uh, a senior week on campus or do they want an earlier graduation? Well, you know who your population is. It's seniors. Uh, When you're dealing with an election, the population is people who vote and that population doesn't exist until after the election. And that's just one of those things that's so elemental and so clever and so mind-blowing that i was just like this is this is this is awesome this is really really cool um we also look at at you know the changes in the republican party coalition and how um uh donald trump just sort of accelerated things that were already happening in the party um which i think gets at that big question that we've all been asking ourselves since 2015 you know is trump the cause of this is he a symptom and this suggests that he's a little bit of both essentially um uh, and the ideology, and then the last two chapters in that section deal with ideology and geography. Um, um, and basically, again, again, getting at the idea of party factions, there is heterogeneity within the parties. You know, there are differences, there are, you know, ideological groups within the parties, not quite the way there were, you know, back in, say, the 1940s, when you would have the conservative Southern Democrats and then the Northern and Western liberals. Um, but yeah, there's, there's still meaningful differences. Um, uh, Chad Kinsella, who's a frequent contributor to our, to our conferences and to our books, um, you know, looks at the geography of the election, uh, and basically saying, you know, it all came down to like 3% of the country. Um, you know, or sorry, three, sorry, 3% of the vote that can't be explained by how a place voted in 2016, um, to give you a sense of like, 
for all of the sound and fury and craziness of 2020, it really came down to, oh, a couple of counties in, in five or six states shifted a little bit. Uh, and it's like, okay, that's how narrow the margins were in 2016 and also how narrow those margins were in 2020. Um, it's, 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 you know, entirely, you know, Pennsylvania is going to keep being a battleground state, uh, Georgia, um, it went blue in a big way, but it could very well be red again. Um, you know, all, all those sorts of things. And then the final chapter, um, looks at election administration, which is one of those things people used to tell me I spent too much time on in my campaigns class. Um, and I Hot. think I, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, and that's by Carly Schmidt. And um, this chapter just looks at which states made changes because again, remember COVID? Um, we were all worried about whether it was going to be possible to vote or how do you get people to vote when you've got this contagious um uh, airborne virus going around. Uh, at the time, people worried about surface transmission, which we we now know wasn't that much of a thing. But you know, we didn't know then. <laughs> we didn't know exactly. We know better now. Um, so you know, lots of states altered their election procedures. Uh, but what Carly finds is that you know, if states with unified Republican uh, control of the state government were a lot more reluctant to make those changes. You know, you had states that were just like, okay, send everybody an absentee ballot. Uh, we're going to do the entire election by mail if you want it. We'll open up the polls on election day, but we don't want people to show up. That's for folks who didn't get their ballot or changed their mind or whatever. Um, but the more Republican control of the state you had, the less likely that would happen. So you had other states where it's like, yeah, there's an election. We vote on election day. So come vote on election day. And if you know, you're know you too afraid of getting COVID, which is like if you're afraid to touch that that hot pan in the oven. Stay home. Stay home. Yeah. Don't eat dinner. Um, and get that, you know, plays into, you know, again, uh, uh, this pre COVID, um, you know, uh, battle over what elections should look like. Should it be easier to vote or should it be harder to vote? Should you have, you know, ID requirements to vote or should you not? Should you be able to register on election day or vote before election day? You know, all these things. Um, so it's it sort of, you know, it, it's a nice note to end on because, A, it's a really important topic that that doesn't get enough attention. Um, but also it shows how, you know, this this weird once in a lifetime election, you know, those controversies are still really rooted in, you know, things that have been going on for a really long time and that were not exclusive to 2020 and were not exclusive to Donald Trump being in the White House or being a candidate for president. And and so in, in that regard, also, as we've sort of have been looking backwards and looking forwards, we see these um, folks getting um, nominated by the Republican Party in a lot of places who are trying to take on different types of election administration um, or shift how elections are run. Um, we have this going on in my fair state of Wisconsin, um, where we've seen quite a few court challenges on any number of things. Um, and and so the, the sort of dull dullness, if you will, of election, election administration um, has become very hot as a topic. 
Yeah, and and it should be. Um, you know, in a perfect world, it would be this incredibly boring thing that nobody but people like us cared about, and would be like, oh look, you know, when this state switched to cream-colored ballot paper, uh, turnout went up by a fourth of a percent, and isn't that interesting? And nobody else would care about it. Um, but what we've seen um, since 2020 is uh, that you know you have these folks in the Republican Party who, uh, whether sincerely or otherwise, think the election was stolen um, or think that it was rigged or think that it was maladministered or whatever, um, and are now going after the positions that uh, would oversee that. And sometimes, you know, we're talking about prominent stuff like, you know, secretary of state for an entire state. Um, But sometimes we're talking about, you know, county election clerk positions or volunteer poll uh, workers and that sort of thing. And, you know, the danger there is that so much of the electoral system just sort of runs on, on trust or, you know, nobody, nobody, counting votes or nobody checking people in caring enough about who wins to use that power to try to affect that. Um, and that's, that's extraordinarily dangerous territory to be in. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, I, I think, you know, I think I said on another podcast with you, you know, what happened in 2020 is we got lucky because it came down to five or six States and not, one state like Florida in 2020. I think the danger we're facing going into 2024 is what if you have election officials in crucial states that just refuse to certify a winner? Not for cause, right? Not like, oh, uh, you know, there was a lightning strike that destroyed 200,000 ballots or something. There was an act of God. We need to figure something else out. But just because, well, hell, you were Georgia ain't casting its electoral votes for 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 a Democrat again. What do Why we not? do? Because that's not how Georgia does that. <laughs> yeah, 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 or yeah. Um, so that's a bad place to be. So hopefully, talking about this, hopefully researching this, um, can help on that front. Um, uh, but obviously, that's not the you know main battleground there unfortunately. I understand. Um, and so I, I'm sure you are, um, preparing for the 2022 election. Um, but Chris, what else are you working on these days? Uh, well, I just sent off my copy edits for a chapter I've got in an edited volume on the politics of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, it's entitled <laughs> Captain America versus James Madison, which is the best title I think I will ever come up with for anything ever. Um, uh, I'm also, um, you know, sort of in the gathering string stage for a paper uh, that I would like to write on the John Fetterman versus Dr. Oz election in in Pennsylvania, because that um, plays incredibly well into my prior research on on carpetbaggers in in the electoral sense. Well, I look forward to reading your paper on the Pennsylvania election. And I have already read your paper on James Madison and Captain America um, to come to come out in a book called The Politics of the Marvel Cinematic Universe from the University Press of Kansas. Um, And I hope to speak with you again soon on the podcast. Anytime.
Thank you for joining me, Chris Galdieri, on behalf Thanks of for- also Jennifer Lucas and Hanna Sisko to talk about polarization and political party factions in the 2020 election, published by Lexington Books in 2022. Thanks so much, Chris. Thanks for having me back, Lily. My pleasure.